Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about the power of global diplomacy to tackle climate change. And we're having this conversation within the backdrop of COP26, which is happening right here in our backyard. It's a pleasure to welcome back onto the show Chris Trott, who is the UK ambassador to the Vatican, the Holy See. And Chris will share insight into his work and into how Pope Francis is helping drive the sustainability agenda and how he is uniting with religious leaders and faith leaders from across the spectrum to help drive forward important messages about our common humanity. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they are able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's a real pleasure to welcome onto the show Chris Trott, UK ambassador to the Vatican. And I'd like to provide a little bit of an introductory context for our listeners today which I think will set the tone for today's conversation. On the 25th of September, 2015, Pope Francis addressed the UN General Assembly, and he made the appeal for a common plan for our common home. And on that day, world leaders adopted Agenda 2030 and the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. In the words of Jeffrey Sachs, a very well-renowned development economist, uh, who I had the pleasure of, of listening to during a lecture on sustainability a little while back. And I quote uh, Jeffrey's words in reference to Pope Francis. And Jeffrey says that he wants to spend a moment to celebrate perhaps our greatest global advocate for the moral basis for sustainable development and for mobilizing the best of us so that we reach the sustainable development goals by doing what is right. And that is Pope Francis. And that's Jeffrey Sachs' own words. He goes on to say that Pope Francis has been a champion, together with other religious leaders who are, of course, looked to for guidance and admired worldwide within their faiths and well beyond their particular faiths, in helping the world to understand why sustainable development is the challenge of our time. Pope Francis has issued several profoundly eloquent calls for action, and the most vivid and comprehensive of these is an encyclical called Laudato Si. In this message, which he addressed not only to the followers of Catholicism, but to people of goodwill of all faiths in all parts of the world, resonated extraordinarily widely and has not only been read widely, but has helped to initiate across the world's major religions a tremendous spark of common action, of shared resolve, of specific partnerships and a heightened engagement with members of the various states all over 
the world. So that sets the tone for today. And Chris, it's such a pleasure to see you again. Welcome on to the Do One Better podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Alberto. It's great to be back with you. Thank you. Excellent. Last time you were on the show, as I remember, you were our ambassador to South Sudan. And uh, today you find yourself UK ambassador to the Vatican. A little bit of a contrast. A very striking contrast in terms of physical location, yes. But actually, in terms of the issues that matter in my daily job, not so much. I mean, in the end, in South Sudan, the priorities were conflict, were poverty, humanitarian crises, and climate change, because South Sudan is on the, on the front line of affected countries. And I think one of the reasons for my appointment is that these are priorities also in the Holy See and priorities particularly under this Pope. Um, and so the dialogue that I have on a daily basis is not a theological one. I'm not a theologian. It's not about resolving differences between different congregations of Christian churches or anything like that. It's actually about uh, matters of concern to both the British government and the Holy Father or to the Vatican, of which climate change is one, of which South Sudan is another. So, so yes, a stark contrast in location, but not in my work. Excellent. Obviously, we're hosting COP26 right here in our backyard. You must be you must have been fairly busy over the last uh, few days, weeks and so forth in preparation. Incredibly busy, in part because I think uh, it was felt critical, not just by uh, my predecessor, because a lot of the work was kicked off by her, but also by others, that we ensured that the voice of the Holy Father was heard. Uh, in the context of the discussions that are taking place in Glasgow right now. And so over a period of a couple of years, we've been working, my embassy before I got there and then me when I arrived, have been working with the Italian embassy to the Holy See and the Vatican itself to try and focus the world's attention on the crisis we're facing and the need to act. And this allowed us to bring together a group of religious leaders with huge moral authority um, a month ago in preparation for COP to make the responsibilities that we all have abundantly clear. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that interfaith engagement with, um, with leaders from across the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an extraordinary moment and such a privilege to be part of it. I mean, the, the, there was a sort of seven-month process of discussion that took place online that led to a drafting of an appeal to the global political leadership. But the plan was always that this appeal should be signed in person by the, the religious leaders involved and handed physically to Alok Sharma as president-designate, now president of COP, and his Italian counterpart, Luigi Di Maio, so we had always hoped to bring this group together in person. Obviously, COVID made that hugely complicated. But the determination of this group of individuals to ensure that this message was heard meant that many of them travelled for the very first time since the start of the epidemic 
to ensure that they could be in the Vatican on the day of the launch of this appeal. And it brought together the Holy Father, it brought together the Archbishop of Canterbury, it brought together the Patriarch from Constantinople, but it also brought together Jewish leaders, it brought together Muslim leaders, including the Imam of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Cairo, and the head of the Muhammadiyah, who are the Indonesian uh, main branch of the Indonesian Islamic faith, who have millions of followers. And it brought them all together to issue this clarion call to our leaders to get this right in Glasgow. Hmm. How inspiring is it to see religious leaders from such diverse um, communities? Absolutely, absolutely incredible. I mean, I remember sitting in this hall watching and they were all standing in a line uh, waiting to sign the book, overseen by Pope Francis. Um, so, you know, and having uh, having this mix, it, I mean, it included Sikhs and Jains and Hindus and Buddhists, having them all standing there and chatting was just something that I never imagined I would experience. And you can't put a, an exact figure on it, but the people that were gathered in that room in some ways represent or speak to 70% of the world's population. And it's very easy to forget that when you sit in a sort of very secular environment like the one in the United Kingdom, um, that, you know, across the world, their voices are heard and are respected. And it's a way of communicating. Um, so it was very powerful. And it all derived from um, Pope Francis's own appeal in the run up to Paris and the events that you occurred in 20, 2015, you referred to in 2015, um, where it's thought that his intervention in advance of Paris ensured was one of the reasons why in the end an agreement was reached. And what we collectively wanted to try and do was to facilitate for these leaders to influence the negotiation again in the same way. And in terms of the political establishment, obviously always keenly aware of constituencies, as you referenced a minute ago, these religious leaders are representatives of millions and millions of individuals across the world. Exactly. All of, all of whom have a vote, or many of whom have a vote. And, you know, when you think about the world's biggest polluters, some of them, for example, are Catholic countries. Uh, and so the expectation or the hope, I think, is that by issuing this clear challenge to political leaders, they will feel a moral obligation to respond, even if they're not convinced by the science or even if they're not politically sure what they want to do. And the appeal itself contains a quid pro quo because what the religious leaders also offer to do is then to go back to their congregations on the back of whatever is agreed in Glasgow uh, to promote a kind of sensible response to it. The political leadership obviously can speak to people's heads and can pass laws, but what they can't do and what perhaps is going to be necessary globally in order to respond to the crisis is they can't speak to people's hearts. And, and these faith leaders can and will and have undertaken to do so. So it's sort of two-way messaging. They're offering to, 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 in response to some concrete action, 
they're offering then to help promote that. It's a fascinating different take on what you normally hear about with regards to the sustainability agenda. So you might think, well, we have government driving forward sustainability agenda, civil society, um, business, uh, and so forth. But uh, the notion of the religious leaders uh, and uh, faith leaders no. isn't always as pronounced or as, as no, as... it's true. And I think that that extends beyond the climate. I mean, I think that actually uh, religious leaders can play a role. And I can't remember whether we talked about it when I was in South Sudan, but religious leaders can help solve conflict. They educate. They look after sick people in countries where the, the, the health infrastructure is not sufficient. So they play this incredible role. Um, and it's something that I think is very, I, I feel very passionately that we need to get better at looking for synergies between what faith organizations do, not just the charities they run, like Christian Aid, which obviously is active in the humanitarian space, but then work out how we can best help ensure that we meet the sustainable development goals in partnership with everyone that has an interest. And that includes faith groups and their, their sort of structures. And this uh, symbiotic engagement, what is it that the religious leaders are now looking towards uh, when they're looking at COP26? What are they eager to hear back so they want to hear concrete commitments from the political leaders in, in a sense in two ways. One, they echoed the commitment in Paris for 1.5 degrees and said, you have to keep to that. And two, what they want to do is they want to hear from, from COP, as they wanted to hear from the G20, a commitment by the global north to providing support to the global south in terms of adaptation. So some concrete commitments of funding. And the objective has always been to raise this $100 billion uh, worth of funding. And it's not yet been reached, that, that commitment. But the religious leaders are calling for uh, all those countries that signed up to that agreement to actually honour their commitments in order that there is uh, 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 the possibility for countries like South Sudan to adapt. Mm -hmm. And what are the inner workings? So it's, you know, if you read the news and you see, you watch a bit of TV, um, a lot of times it's, it's mm. very depressing. You see a lot of conflict. You don't see so much about the engagement, the interfaith engagement that goes on there. At one point you see a, a wonderful photo where you have all of these religious leaders standing together and, mm. and, and projecting a, an image of, of unity and common purpose. Um, what are the inner workings and you as a career diplomat that, that underlie such a photograph where you have 20 religious leaders from across the world? How does that actually happen? It's extraordinarily complicated. And I'm really grateful, actually, to the Vatican for its understanding. There's this thing called protocol that doesn't feature in most people's lives uh, very often. Um, and yet it's incredibly important who sits next to the Pope in a meeting like that um, and where you sit representatives of Shia and Sunni Islam 
and where you sit the Jewish representatives and where you sit the Lutherans. I mean, it all matters. But fortunately, the Vatican are experts on the religious side. I could probably do it if it was a bunch of diplomats, but I wouldn't touch it uh, for a, a bunch of religious leaders. But I mean, the important thing really was to find the common ground. And while at the beginning of this process, we were very conscious that, that the Holy Father's message on Laudato Si, to which you referred, was a very powerful exposition of why we need to look after our planet. We weren't quite sure how this would resonate with other faiths. And actually, while the Abrahamic faiths have this very clear creation story, what was really striking when we sat down and started to draft the appeal was actually every faith at its core recognizes that humans don't own the planet. We have a responsibility to look after it and a responsibility to hand it over to future generations in the way that we found it. And that clear basis in every faith made it very easy in the end to then draft the appeal because the damage we're doing in, in our polluting of the environment is clearly an attack on the principles of every one of these faiths. Uh, that was brought together in this meeting. So often the most complicated part of a negotiation is actually agreeing a text that people can sign up to. But this essential element was just there on a platter. And obviously there was a tweaking of words, but it wasn't anything fundamental. Um, so the appeal that was launched was actually easier to draft although i think the people that actually sit that sat down and did it would kick me for saying that than it might otherwise have been and it might have been easier than the negotiations that are taking place in glasgow right now um because there's this political element to that discussion that simply wasn't there in the in the religious leaders discussions they were able to be more visionary in a way or aspirational which perhaps is appropriate given what their job is compared to a politician. Mm. Is it a matter of these religious leaders now looking to Glasgow and literally waiting until the end of November to figure out exactly what's been what's been figured out? I don't I don't think they're just waiting. I mean if you look at what Pope Francis is doing, he's continually talking about this. So he's referred to it on a number of occasions including in his Angelus prayers on a Sunday. He was interviewed on, he, he, he spoke to Radio 4, the British radio station, uh, on their thought for the day, which is something that has been going on for decades and decades, but has never attracted the attention of, of, of a pope before. Um, and when Cardinal Parolin, who is the Secretary of State at the Vatican, came as the Pope's representatives to address the World Leaders Summit, he came with a very clear message from the Holy Father about the responsibility that our political leaders at a global level have now to act now. Is there a palpable optimism? <sighs> I, I'm not in Glasgow and I'm not involved in the political side of the negotiations. I brought together the religious leaders. I think, 
uh, our feeling, particularly in October, but again since when Pope Francis has been talking about this, I think that the religious communities have done everything they could to uh, focus the minds of our political leaders. Whether that's going to be enough, I think remains, uh, remains to be seen. But I think we have to be optimistic. Um, and, you know, in working with churches and religious leaders, uh, hope is something they do as a profession. And it's slightly contagious, I'm pleased to say. So you, you always end up coming out with a degree of hope, even if, as you say, the news <laughs> can sometimes be quite depressing. It can, it can. And on the opposite side, then tell me a little bit about what it felt like to uh, present your credentials to the Pope on that day with your family. The, the, the credential ceremony is a sort of arcane piece of ambassadorial appointment making, um, but actually is hugely personally important for an ambassador. So I brought from the UK a letter from Her Majesty the Queen to His Holiness the Pope that said that this guy, Chris Trott, is my ambassador and I hope you'll be nice to him and he represents me and I trust him and I hope you will too. And, and the requirement of a new ambassador is to hand that letter to the person to whom it's addressed. So I got uh, a meeting with the Holy Father in which I handed him my documents. And to that meeting, uh, the Vatican also invited my family. So my family were with me. And it's almost, it's almost indescribable to meet somebody with the kind of moral authority and public profile of Pope Francis and to do it in a 16th century building with an Al Greco on the wall uh, is just wonderful. And, and yet Pope Francis, as you would expect, was just so charming and so graceful and that the whole thing was just an extraordinary experience. I can imagine. It'll be with you forever, that memory. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And there are photos on my Twitter feed that I think are going to stay there for as long <laughs> as I, 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 I'm still in charge of it. <laughs> you are always very active on Twitter. I think that's, I've known you I think, <laughs> yes. since like 10 years already. And uh, the, the Twitter angle is always, you are, you are very good with that. <laughs> what, what is your Twitter handle, by the way? At Chris Trot. There you go. The... Um, the bit I'm I'm curious about is uh, your 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 day in and day out. What's what's life of a UK ambassador to the Vatican like? Uh, I mean, obviously, it is different from uh, most other ambassadorial appointments, and there is a certain uh, element of uh, ceremonial, um, perhaps is the right word, that um, religious ceremonial. Uh, element that doesn't exist in, in most jobs. So if you're a ba an ambassador, for example, in a country overseas and it's your national day, you have a party. Um, but if you're ambassador to the Holy See and you're from a Catholic country, you have a mass. Um, and so all the other ambassadors then go to the church to celebrate your national day rather than going to a, uh, uh, a knees up. Um, and actually, that's 
extraordinary. And being in Rome and doing that and being invited to go to St. Peter's Basilica or to go to one of the small churches on the outskirts of Rome, whichever it is, it gives you a wonderful sense of the reach of the church, of the vibrancy of, of Rome. Um, and so it's an important part of the work. But but actually, a lot of other things I do are exactly the same. So the Vatican has ministries. They call them dicasteries, but they're effectively ministers, the heads of those dicasteries who are all cardinals. But I need to need, know them in the same way that in my last job, I got to meet ministers of the government to which I was accredited. The Vatican runs universities like the Gregorian University. Um, I need to get to know and understand the work that they're doing. Um, in support of the church, obviously, but then also in support of the issues that you and I have spent the last 20 minutes talking about in looking at climate change, looking at sustainable development. Um, and so actually a lot of it is about meetings. It's just that I have to remind myself every now and then that I'm there for a meeting and not to look at the 16th century ceiling. Uh, and the frescoes on the wall, because there is a temptation just to sit there looking up and in awe at the sort of in, in the, at the places that you are you are having your meetings in. But you know, I jest. But this is just such a powerful, not powerful. That's the wrong word. But such an influential organisation, the Vatican, and you know, on issues that matter to the British government. They are vocal and 99% of the time we're aligned. And therefore, I go to my meeting, I look at the ceiling, and then I try and find synergies. Yeah. And you have to watch your waistline as well, I imagine, if you're living out there in Rome. Yes. My, my wife is very keen for me to be careful because uh, it, it is all too easy to eat and drink your way around the city of Rome. Yeah. What is it that you'd like to uh, achieve in, in your years when, you know, because you're, you're fairly new in this post, but what is it that you, you know, if we're looking back after you, you, you go into your next assignment, um, what is it that you'd love to be able to look back on and say, wow, it was great that we were able to accomplish this or that or the other? I mean, I, I think I was lucky in that one of them I've already succeeded in doing partly because, well, mainly because of all the work that my predecessors have done. But what I would like to be able to do is to do more of that, to, to identify more areas where we can work together to make a difference in the part of the world that I've spent the last 15 years of my life working on and in. Um, so in Africa uh, and beyond Africa. I mean, uh, you know, I'm talking to the Vatican nowadays about Burma, for example. That was my first posting. 30 years ago as a junior diplomat, um, seeing success in peace talks in somewhere like Burma would be hugely powerful. Not that I would be doing anything other than being a very small cog in a very large wheel. Um, so I would like to be able to increase the level of understanding in the UK about what it is that the Vatican does and how it can partner with us. And then I would like to build those partnerships. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit about Burma, and uh, I mean, you've you've been all over the world, as I remember. You um, you you were stationed in Japan at some point. Then I think over yes. the water cooler, if I remember the anecdote correctly, somebody was talking over the water cooler while you were in Japan, saying we're looking for somebody to go to Afghanistan. Yes, <laughs> during the height of all the problems, and you said, "Yeah, um, 
I raised I my did hand. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your memory is amazing. <laughs> well, that, that's an anecdote that's a little bit difficult to forget. I have to yeah. say. Um, and and I've worked on things like uh, tolerance, for example. I mean, from a government perspective, but obviously that turns in translates into interfaith dialogue in in the mind of the Vatican. And sitting in West Africa, I was always struck by how tolerant the societies there were, and tried to tap into some of that. Uh, at a time when there was an increasing threat of intolerance that sadly has, in some parts of West Africa, been realized over the last decade. Um, but building greater mechanisms, better mechanisms for, for enhancing uh, what are ultimately discussions around peace and conflict, using religious engagement as well as political engagement is something that seems to be a no-brainer, if I can put it like that. It's something that the UN Secretary General takes very seriously, and he set up a panel of mediation, senior mediation leaders, of whom one is the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he recognizes that actually faith plays a really important role, but often in the, in the press in the West, uh, you tend to see faith portrayed as part of the problem rather than part of the solution in many of these conflict situations. But that's, that's simply not true. Uh, and I think that people of genuine faith are always going to be part of a solution rather than part of a problem when it comes to solving conflict. Here, here. No, absolutely. I think the, the power of faith and, and of, of interfaith dialogue yeah. and understanding. Yeah. And that's something absolutely. that I, I, I underscore in, uh, in the most robust way possible and for anybody listening i think try to understand um yes that that we are united by by common denominators that are stronger than just about anything else exactly exactly and and that's sort of what i was referring to when i talked about the the writing of our appeal but it doesn't just apply in the issue of creation it applies across the board in terms of our common humanity and as pope francis has so eloquently written and then followed up in dialogue with Islamic leaders, his Fratelli Tutti, his his brother, all we are all brothers message is, is something that's very powerful and true, common humanity. Yeah. I uh, I always ask my guests, as you know, for a parting takeaway thought they'd like the audience to remember after they finish listening to the episode. Perhaps that's it, but here's the option. I think that is it, the, the sort of common humanity. But I also think it's, it's about recognizing and respecting that whether or not we are of one particular faith or no faith, there, are, uh, in, there is an important role for leaders of faiths in engaging on international issues that might not seem to be relevant to the faith and climate change, you could argue, is not obviously relevant to uh, religious leaders. But actually, the 4th of October event and the appeal that they launched at that event demonstrated that they absolutely have a locus to be engaging on this. And actually, if we engage meaningfully with leaders of faith, then our jobs become more achievable, no matter how difficult they feel. Mm, very well said. Chris, I have to thank you so much. For, for joining us on the Do One Better podcast again. It's always such a pleasure to see you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, thanks for making the time. I know it's incredibly busy. 
Um, and uh, I'm looking forward already to visiting you in Rome. Excellent. I look forward to seeing you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to a great conversation with Chris Trott, UK ambassador to the Vatican. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, please click that subscribe button. If you haven't already, share widely with others as well. Always makes a huge difference. And do leave us a review and a rating if you enjoy the show. Thanks so much, and I'll catch you next week.